Now, one of the functions of the Great Tribulation period is for God certainly to show His righteousness, but it will be His final wake-up call for those who've never heard the gospel before to repent. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 7, we will see this great multitude that no one can count that will come to genuine faith in Jesus as Lord. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. This week, we've been looking at the church at Philadelphia, one of seven churches in Asia Minor listed in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation that were addressed by Jesus through the Apostle John. We've seen Jesus highly commend this church for their holding fast to the Word of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit, having persevered in their obedience. Because of their faithfulness, Jesus tells this church, and He tells similar churches by application, that they'll be saved from the hour of testing, namely from the tribulation. As we conclude our message, A Church God Can Use, Dr. Brogy picks up in verse 9 of Revelation 3 and looks at the opposition being faced by the church at Philadelphia. We read now in verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, sometimes when God opens a door of opportunity, it will swing on a door of adversity. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, for a wide door for effective service is open to me and there are many adversaries. We studied in the book of Daniel that the people who know their God will display strength and take action. But with that power and with that open door and with that action often comes opposition. Listen, there's no lazy way, there's no cheap way to serve God. Some Christians are not being used of God because they're lazy. I mean, I'm not being unkind, I'm just being truthful. There's no cheap way, no easy way, no lazy way to serve God. And sometimes when you serve the living God, with it comes opposition. And so this church was no exception. This is probably the greatest of all seven. And yet he says, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say, here's a testimony they give, who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. Now, not everyone was obviously happy with the church in Philadelphia. He speaks here of a group of people that he designates as being a part of the synagogue of Satan. And let me say parenthetically that the true church will often be targeted by people who are unbelievers. And God wants to put some steel in the hearts of these people in Philadelphia and us as well. And as we move to the end of the age and things get more and more wicked and you become more and more distinctly different, then that opposition is going only to increase. When I was a new Christian, I would say, I think it was safe to say that at least the majority, over 50%, that over 50% of the churches in America were good churches. They had the gospel. No more. Now gospel preaching churches have become a minority. And if you're listening to me somewhere in the world today and you are in a good church, and people are making fun of you, don't worry, you are in good company. 
Now, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute to you. And some of you are moving this summer. Some of you are going to another city and you're going to be looking for a good church. And don't always go by what people say. Sometimes the church that they ridicule and speak negatively of is actually the best church in the city that you want to attend. I've learned over the years, people either love us or they absolutely hate us, but there's very little middle ground when it comes to Community Bible Church. And that was true of the church here in this city called Philadelphia. So sometimes a good thing to do is just to listen to what people say. Now, I'm not talking about obnoxious people. I'm not talking about, you know, a Westboro Baptist type of church that is just absolutely disgusting and obnoxious, and they are ridiculed, not because they're godly, but because they're godless. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who is living and loving the Lord. And so there's a group of Jews, Jesus said, who claim to be Jews, but they are not. What does that mean? Does it mean that that they thought they were descendants of Abraham and they were just mistaken about their own identity? Clearly not, because for the most part in that day, Jews did not intermarry. Only 5% of Jews today intermarry. So it's very unusual, and and there's a purpose in that. God has protected the people of Israel. He's kept them a nation because he's going to pull off the second coming of Jesus through these people. So these people were descendants of Abraham. They knew in terms of their nationality that they were descendants of Abraham just as someone from China or India or Iran or Iraq or some other nation of the world knows what their nationality is. That's not what is in view here. But though they were physically descended from Abraham and in that sense they were Jews, they were not Jews and that they did not have what the New Testament calls and what the Old Testament illustrates, the faith of Abraham. Paul will put it in these words in Romans 2, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And so over and over again, as you study in the Gospels, the public ministry of Jesus, he repeatedly opposed the synagogue of Satan. He encountered various scribes and Pharisees and Herodians who claimed to be Abraham's children, but he will say to them on one occasion, you are of your father, the devil. And so the church in Philadelphia, like many first century churches in the province of Asia, would be comprised of both Jewish born-again believers and Gentiles who are born again. And so the hostility comes from unregenerate Jewish people who oppose their faith in, in Joshua, in Yeshua, or in Jesus, as we'd say in English. I will make them, though, he says follow, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So how would this happen? How would these anti-Christian Jews bow down in sorrow before these believers in Philadelphia recognizing that they were true, genuine followers? Well, I think what would happen practically is they would see that there was something that they did not possess something the scriptures prophesied of that these people definitely had. Now, let let me say while we're here, in the early days of the church, the church in terms of a religious group was opposed by Jewish people. He came to his own, his own received him not. And so if you were not a completed Jew, a born-again Jew, then you would typically oppose Christians and you would go against believers. 
Now in the 21st century, and it began to change over the centuries, Christians, so-called Christians, oppose Jewish people. And some of the um, theology that has driven this came out of certain reformers like Calvin and Luther, what we call replacement theology. Replacement theology basically says that God is done with the people of Israel, that the church is the new Israel, and there's no significance at all for the Jew. How wrong they are. And it was those seeds that Luther and Calvin planted that actually led to the theology in Germany that Hitler used to seek to annihilate some six billion Jews. But what he is saying here is, look, by your changed life, by the different kind of relationship that you have with me, that some of these Jews in the synagogue of Satan who hate you, they're going to actually come down and in sorrow, they're going to love you because you love me. You know, some of you know I have a, a rabbi friend in Jerusalem. In fact, he called me this past week. And, but I remember a year ago, we were in discussion. He said, Pastor Carl, he calls me Pastor Carl. I call him Rabbi Rabbi Hanok, we kind of joke, and, and uh, he said, you know, when I came to Community Bible Church, he said, I was treated better at Community Bible Church than any other place I've ever been. And understand, his audiences are worldwide. He travels to multiple nations every year, and it's almost all Jewish people. But what grabbed him and is grabbing him is a distinctly different nature of you as a church. And I thank God for that. And so the promise that Jesus is making here in verse 9 is, so, is not so much a promise of vindication. This is a promise of encouragement to them. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I, Yeshua, have loved you. Now understand, God loves people in two ways. There's a general sense in which God loves the whole world, for God so loved the world. Uh, there's a general sense in that God loves all that he created. And so the prophet Ezekiel says, I, God speaking, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But there's another sense in which we as his beloved ones have a unique special relationship, and that's what's being taught here. I have loved you. And it's the promise that the prophets wrote about in the Old Testament. For instance, Jeremiah wrote, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. God prophesied of a different kind of relationship where the Lord would, in a very real, close, intimate way, love his people. Now, this is a promise, if you know the context, it's repeated in Ezekiel, that is looking at the people of Israel, and it's going to be fulfilled yet in the future in the seven-year tribulation period. Most Jews are going to believe Jesus is Lord. But the New Testament quotes it, not as a complete fulfillment, but a partial fulfillment amongst Jews and Gentiles today that believe. And so Jesus is saying to the church at Philadelphia, when they see your life and they see the different character of your life, some of these unbelieving, hateful Jewish people who oppose you, they're going to come down and, and bow at your feet and recognize that I, the Lord God, have truly loved you. Now, beyond their opportunities and their opposition, let's also think about their ministry that involved a certain outlook, a certain perspective. 
We read now in verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So the Bible speaks here of this hour of testing that he will keep them from. What's it called? We're going to begin to study it when we come to the sixth chapter. It's called the tribulation period. It's a seven-year period in human history. There has never, ever, ever been in the history of the world a time of tribulation and heartache that has come upon the entire planets, but it is coming. And he speaks here of this hour of testing that he will keep those out to test those who dwell on the earth, literally to test earth dwellers. Now, one of the functions of the great tribulation period is for God certainly to show his righteousness, but it will be his final wake-up call for those who've never heard the gospel before to repent. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 7, we will see this great multitude that no one can count that will come to genuine faith in Jesus as Lord. But the phrase earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, is a certain phrase that's used over and over and over again. We're going to study it over and over again as we work through Revelation of unbelievers, of people who have as their perspective this life only. And God is going to use the time of the tribulation to judge them. Now, the Lord's promise is that he'll keep the church at Philadelphia, and since he's not just writing to a church, but to churches, any church, from this time that is coming on the world. We call it the rapture. Jesus, through Paul, said, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's the rapture. He will come, could happen today. Nothing is ever needed to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. He could come and sweep us off this building and up into heaven in a moment's time. We meet the Lord in the air. That is distinctly different from the second coming where he literally comes to the earth, plants his feet on the Mount of Olives, and he will rule and reign. And the throne that was told Mary that her son would inhabit will be fulfilled for a thousand years. And Jesus is saying in reference to these people, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, meaning you're genuine believers, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. Please note what it does not say. It does not say I will keep you through the hour of testing. It does not say I will keep you in spite of the hour of testing. It does not say I will keep you in the midst of the hour of testing. But I will keep you from the hour of testing. Now, there are some Christians who believe that the church will be here for the great tribulation period. And they think that this hour of testing that we are kept from is the great white throne judgment because in Revelation 20, you discover the great white throne judgment and the only people who are present are unbelievers. They'll say, well, you'll be kept from that. Well, the problem with that is it doesn't literally interpret the text. He's talking about a time that will come upon the earth. And when you come to Revelation 20 and the great white throne judgment, you discover that the current heaven and earth have been burned with fire, just as 2 Peter 3 teaches. And before God creates the new heaven and the new earth, somewhere out there in eternity, the great white throne judgment takes place. No, there has never been a time like Jesus spoke of when he said there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, the days will be cut short. So in Revelation 3.10, he's saying, I will take you out of, ek, not in, but out of. I will take you out of the tribulation. That is a promise he is making 
to his church. It's a magnificent promise. Now, if he had wanted to tell them that you will be preserved through the tribulation, he would have used the pronoun in, but he uses the pronoun ek. I will keep you out of this coming time. And another problem with interpreting this to mean that Christ will sustain the church through the tribulation is that many who come to faith during the time of the great tribulation are executed. They're called tribulation saints. And most tribulation saints will lose their heads. You know, when a preacher would preach that 20 years ago, some people thought, that can't be real. People don't do that anymore. Oh, we've witnessed it recently, haven't we? Group of people who want to take off the heads of believers and have. It's going to be worldwide, the Bible teaches. You acknowledge Jesus as Lord and refuse Antichrist, you won't have a head for long. And unless those days had been cut short, no one would have survived. Some would say, well, you know, what he's promising here is he'll, he'll keep the church from those plagues that come during the tribulation. But a promise that God will not kill believers through the plagues, but allow the devil through his people kill them is no comfort at all and certainly not what is in view here. Listen, we'll study this in great detail, and it will not be by accident that when we come to chapter 4 all the way through chapter 19, the church will not be mentioned once because the church will be gone. And all the people you will see converted between Revelation 4 and Revelation 19 are people who were left behind, people who had never heard the gospel before in authority and in power. And so in either case, he makes this promise. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. Now again, if this was a reference to the tribulation, uh, I mean, to our going through the tribulation, then look, this church, they're all gone. In fact, there's not a church today in Philadelphia. There's some churches in a couple of the seven churches that we've looked at, but all the saints are gone. In fact, this is one of the rare occasions in church history where, for the most part, the blood of the saints become the seed of the church. Muslims in Turkey have just literally annihilated God's people. One brother wrote me from our Hilton Head campus. He was there in Turkey just recently. And one of the churches, I better not say for security reasons, but there's 30 believers in that whole city of several million. But for the most part, the church is non-existent in Turkey. They've been persecuted. They've been smothered. They're gone. And yet the Lord Jesus is giving some comfort here to his people that they're going to be raptured. Now, their side of the rapture is going to be different because they've been dead for a few thousand years. See, those of us who are alive at the rapture, we're going to be taken right off this earth and up into heaven. But that's only one half of the rapture. The dead in Christ, those who've been buried, which would encompass this entire church, they too will be taken up. And they will, this promise will literally be fulfilled to the church at Philadelphia. They'll be in heaven as the tribulation period is unfolding on earth. Verse 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may take your crown. Now, people read that and say, well, wait a minute. It's been almost 2,000 years. What does he mean to say, I am coming quickly? Well, we hit on this in chapter 1. Your translations, some of them say soon or shortly. It's the word taxis. We get our word taxometer from it. That when Jesus comes, when the events begin, boom, 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 second coming. 
That's why Jesus will say in the Olivet Discourse, is recorded in Luke's Gospel, when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He's speaking to, to Jewish people who are alive during the tribulation, and they begin to see the time of Jacob's trouble, as it's called by Jeremiah, what we call the Great Tribulation, unfold. And Jesus said, when these events happen, this is the end. It happens very, 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 very quickly. Now, just in closing, I'll only spend a minute on it. Beyond the church in her ministry and the church in her master, let's think about the church in her message. It's unfolded on three levels. First, the church is given a message of stability. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and, will not go out, and he will not go out from it anymore. So verse 12 lets them know there'll be a day when they'll be rewarded for their faithfulness to the Lord. And this verse is designed again to strengthen them. Uh, we had a picture, I'm not sure we found it, but of an ancient temple that survives to this day in Philadelphia. And there are ruins there. Most of the pillars are gone. But one of the things that they did in these pagan temples is that if you were an outstanding citizen, then like in some churches where a stained glass window is dedicated to an individual, there would be a pillar that would be dedicated to you. Now the term pillar, you've seen that term before in Scripture used in reference to people. Like three of the apostles are called pillars of the church in the book of Galatians. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, this is a city, little Athens, filled with pagan temples. You can go there today and you can see some of the inscriptions and these different pillars that were dedicated to different individuals. And if you're an outstanding citizen, you might have your name on one of them. But Jesus is basically saying, you may not be well known down here. And you may not be well liked down here. And you may not have any pillar dedicated to you, but in heaven I will make you a pillar. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. Remember, this is a place known for earthquakes. In April, they had a 4.8 and a 5.0 earthquake in this very city that Philadelphia was in in the first century. And it was a place where, as I mentioned in 70 A.D., was totally destroyed. And people in their temple would grab their items and go for cover. And Jesus said, it's going to be so secure, so fixed, you'll never have to flee. He'll not go out from this temple. Heidi Yosia, in the 16th century, a, a Japanese warlord, built a shrine in the city of Kyoto. And he built a magnificent temple that he spent millions of dollars, they say in dollars in his day, an incredible amount of money. And just after he completed it, an earthquake came and the whole thing toppled down. And he was so upset, he took an arrow and aimed it at the statue that fell honoring this false god. And he cursed it and it was said that he said, I spent millions to build you. Could you not even look after your own temple? Well, God is looking after his temple. He overcomes, will not go out anymore. He's giving them a message here of, of stability, but he gives them also a message of security. Again, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven in my new name. 
These are people who have a wonderful promise. I'm going to write my name, the name of the Father on you. I'm going to write my new name. Jesus' name in the Old Testament is Yahweh when he comes as the angel of the Lord. In the New Testament, his Hebrew name is Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. Multiple languages we could use to describe his name. We call him Jesus. They'll call him by different names in different countries depending on their language. But it's Yeshua or Joshua in Hebrew and Jesus or Jesus in Greek. But he has a new name in heaven. And he's going to write his name on you and the name of his new city. When people die today, they go to the New Jerusalem. Someday that city is going to come down and set on a new earth. God's going to write your name. And you know, things that are important to me, I say it on you now. Write my name on that so that if it gets lost, people will know who it belongs to. You're important to the Lord. And if you know Jesus, he's going to write his name on you. It speaks of security, but finally he gives them a, a message of simplicity. A message of simplicity. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not what he says to the church, but what he says to the churches. He wants us to hear this message, and he wants us to heed this message. You know, most of the problems we have, we've invented. By not hearing and not heeding, most of the problems God's people have today just come from simple disobedience. And so Jesus wants us to hear. Listen, you're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, the Bible teaches you will persevere. You will persevere to the end. It's a mark of genuine conversion. But he's dealing in this passage of Scripture not just with our salvation, but with our service. He wants us to hold fast to the crown. There's a reward for the faithful. Some Christians will have greater reward in heaven than others. And those who hear and heed the words of our Savior today will have great reward. Now, if you've never met him, you cannot earn your way to heaven. You can do nothing to contribute to salvation. Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. And if you've never met him, why don't you call upon him today to save you? Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for your word today, for its truth. I pray today for someone who's listening to me, who maybe has never personally met you. Help them in simple, childlike faith to call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. Thank you that whoever will call on his name will be saved. But help us who are members of the universal church who have become members, many of us, of this local church. Help us to hear and to heed the words of your son. That this is not simply what he said to the people in Philadelphia, but what he's saying to people living here in Beaufort in the 21st century. Help us, our Father, to do some personal evaluation, to look within, to ask if we are like the people in Philadelphia. May we be to the glory of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. To listen again to today's study in Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13, and the message, A Church God Can Use, visit searchthescriptures.org or use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. If you prefer, you can order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV9. Search the Scriptures is committed to introducing people to Christ and then to grow believers in their walk of faith. If you'd like to help support this teaching ministry, please call 877-787-7478 
to make a one-time gift or to inquire about becoming a monthly foundation partner. You can also visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and click the Give button. Thank you. Tomorrow we begin a look at the last church of seven addressed by Jesus in a message entitled, Lukewarm Christians. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.